As we look at Acts chapter 8, we're only going to be looking at the first eight verses. Luke inserts sort of a transition story here to be able to, uh, to move the, the story along from what's happening in chapter 7 in Jerusalem into what's about to happen in the rest of it. It picks up this way, following that, that appendage there at, at uh, the end of 7, beginning of 8, and Saul approved their killing him. We read this. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip, saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he did. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. For there was great joy in that city. Father, as we turn to your word for inspiration, for instruction, for encouragement, remind us that this is not some self-help book. This is your heart and will revealed to us. That you have given us your word, this special revelation, so that you could make yourself known. You want us to understand the text because you want us to understand you. Father, remind us as we spend time here today, this is a spiritual book. It can only be rightly understood with spiritual eyes. With that in mind, Lord, we confess to you that we are far too often unspiritual. We are far too often caught up in the shiny things of this world. And we get distracted thinking that, that this world is somehow all there is or that heaven is a, a far off concept that gives encouragement to us in our grief. We confess, Father, that you have, uh, you have called us to something to which we have not lived up. You've called us to holiness. You've called us to put you above everything. And Father, we haven't. We get caught up in politics. We get caught up in disagreements and selfishness and greed and pride and anger. We think that somehow things that we face every day, the decisions of government officials, spread of a virus, the impact of a shutdown economy. We feel like somehow these things are of great urgency, as if you are not in control. 
Lord, there are many today caught up in speculations and conspiracy theories. They may all be true. And yet, we read in the Psalms why the nations rage. God in heaven scoffs at them. Lord, we know that their plots against you are always in vain. Therefore, their plots against your people are always in vain. As Jesus said he would build his church, the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Father, cleanse us even now. Those who are in Christ have been made clean by his sacrifice, but Lord, wash us, wash our feet. Cleanse us from the filth that we pick up just walking around in this world as we lose sight the reality of who you are. Take away everything that would distract us, that would discourage us, that would deceive us. That we could hear only your voice. Shape us, Father. By any means necessary, make us more like your blessed Son. We pray this in his name. Well, as we see this portion of of this chapter, we recognize that a terrible thing has occurred. Stephen has been falsely accused, dragged off, charged with blasphemy, dragged out into the street, and stoned until dead. Literally, stones hurled at him until he bled and died. This is a major turning point for the church, but perhaps not the way we might expect it. When we see hardship, we tend to run from it. When we see the the difficulties that come our way, we tend to run from them. And God calls us to a broader, bigger, deeper perspective. God calls us to recognize that He is in it. Not simply that he is outside it and that he is able to carry us through it because he's bigger than these circumstances. He is, but he's not just outside it looking to help as another player in the game. God is in it with us. Not only is he in it with us, able to empathize and sympathize because he has been in our shoes But he is actually in what is happening, present in it as a cause. That can be so hard for us to grasp. I hope by the end of the day here that we will will see some themes that come out of the text that can hopefully help us to be able to deal with the situations that we are facing today. We go through all kinds of things. And it can cause us to have doubts. It can cause us to have false understandings of who God is. As we look at at Acts chapter 8, we see in verse 1, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. Notice that it happens immediately. With the stoning of Stephen, it's the inauguration of this great persecution. 
broad, vast, intense. And it broke out against the church in Jerusalem. At this point, the church is seated in Jerusalem. All the believers are there. That doesn't mean every believer is there because it began at Pentecost and there were many who came from out of town and presumably went back to their homes. But the vast majority of the church, the bulk of the people following Christ are together in one sense or another in Jerusalem. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Notice what happens here with this great persecution that breaks out against the church in Jerusalem. All except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Interesting. All except the apostles. The apostles needed to stay to encourage the believers to be, uh, to be this hub to, to give hope. So they remain. It appears that not every believer left. When it says all the, uh, all the disciples were scattered, all the believers were scattered except for the apostles, uh, it doesn't appear to mean every individual but the great group of them. Because some godly men were there. It does not appear to be the apostles. It doesn't say the apostles buried them. But some godly men were there to bury Stephen. And they mourned greatly. They mourned deeply for him. In the midst of this, as the church is now scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and eventually even to the ends of the earth, Saul begins to destroy the church in the NIV, verse 3. Other translations say he begins to ravage the church. He begins to take great action, great pains, even to the point of invading houses. In other renderings, we see that he entered homes and dragged out men and women to put them in prison. This is a great persecution. And Saul is at the center of it. Drags off both men and women. Puts them in prison. But notice what happens in verse 4. Those who have been scattered. Preached the word. Wherever they went. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Judea and Samaria. Persecution causes those who had been scattered. To go throughout Judea and Samaria. And they preach the word wherever they went. Now, that's an interesting little juxtaposition. They're scattered by persecution, and yet they are undeterred while they have gone out. They are not afraid to keep on speaking the name, preaching the gospel that brings the persecution. This same gospel that they are persecuted for in Jerusalem, they're taking it out. And we will see as we go along, they will be persecuted there too. They end up being persecuted everywhere they go. Because the gospel always brings opposition. And standing against that opposition leads to persecution. The gospel is at its core, in its essence, in its nature, offensive to the mind that is governed by sinful flesh. 
as I see this scattering and preaching. And he gives this example of Philip, one of the seven that were chosen to handle the physical ministry. Philip is proclaiming the Messiah, and as he does it, he does uh, attesting miracles, signs and wonders to confirm the message common at this time. And because of what he said and because of what he did, everybody paid close attention. I think the ESV says, in one accord, they listened closely. Because his acts showed power and his words brought authority. And they saw impure spirits come out with shrieks. And they saw paralyzed and lame people healed. And there was great joy in that city. And this scattering that leads to joy reminds me of talking to my, my daughter, Emma, about dandelions. She said, Dad, dandelions are they're tricky. They're confusing. Because they're weeds, but they're so pretty. I wish we could have them all over the place. Well, rest assured, we will. We do. You know, dandelions are funny things because some of you might remember this, maybe on the playground as a kid or as a 32-year-old woman, when they go to seed and get that little puffy ball on the end, right? And you maybe blow them, make a wish, do those sorts of things. You know, it's an interesting thing. Those dandelions gone to seed get trampled on. They get kicked. And when you kick it, it seems like it would harm and destroy the plant. But what it actually does is it scatters the seed. And what was one dandelion becomes a thousand. The same thing happens here. The persecution that is brought against the church is actually sowing seeds of the gospel far and wide, everywhere they go. Everywhere they go, they bring the message, and the message brings the power, and the power brings the joy. And in that city in Samaria that's unnamed here in Luke's account, Philip, proclaiming the word and acting in accordance with that word, fills the city with joy. Wherever they go, that's where the party's at. Brings us to our core reality today. As we talk about God's surprising sovereignty and suffering, we see the, the, the difficult concepts that we wrestle with as we look at God's hand in our hardship there's a very key reality that we need to see here in this particular passage. It's a transition from what happens in Jerusalem to what happens in Judea and Samaria. It's a transition from the localized gospel to the bigger gospel. And the link between them is God's hand in this persecution. Notice this, our core reality. What the devil intends as a weapon as a tool. What the devil ordains, what the devil intends as a weapon, God ordains as a tool. God is not unaware of the devil's schemes. Now we all get that. But understand this God knows the devil's schemes before the devil does. God knew what Satan planned in this persecution. God's hand held the whole thing. 
what Satan intended to persecute the church, God had already intended to spread the church, to grow the church. So that through the persecution of these in Jerusalem, even the stoning of Stephen, many more souls would be saved. And cities away from Jerusalem would be filled with joy because of the gospel. I'm reminded of when I learned to play chess with my father. And, you know, I'm, I love to play chess. Uh, I don't get to do it as much anymore as I would like to. I think it's a fantastic game, filled with life lessons and good for any quarterback or linebacker looking to looking to uh, to be better at handling the sport of football, which is also ordained by God. Anyway, when I learned to play chess with my dad, I I discovered after some time he gave some lessons and we played and he was gentle with me and. Over time, I started feeling pretty good about myself. I started thinking I knew how to play the game, and to an extent I did, but I kept on losing. Well, while I do like to teach kids to be good sports, I struggled with sportsmanship myself. I was having a hard time understanding, why is it that I keep losing? Well, I realized my dad was thinking more than I was thinking. Seems obvious, doesn't it? So I kept seeing these brilliant moves that I could make. And I know I'm going to get him this time. I know I am. I see his queen is in jeopardy. I'm going to take her out. And I would make my brilliant little subtle move. My dad would smirk as he often did. Capture my piece. And end up putting me in checkmate in a breath later. Why? I discovered that it was because my dad was baiting me. He was. What kind of terrible dad does that? He was baiting me. Dad was allowing me to see something that looked like I had the advantage so that when I made my brilliant move to attack, I fell right into what he had already planned. I learned uh, to the same lesson again when I was in the Air Force and uh, separated from my wife for a number of months at the beginning of that time. And I was in the barracks with a bunch of single guys, not my favorite place to be at that time. But there were a couple of guys uh, who would, rather than going down and, and uh, carousing, they would hang out with me and play some chess. And there was one guy, Jimmy, who was just a chess stud. This guy was a beast. And he could beat me in six moves every time. And I kept falling for it. Eventually, I had him show me how he was doing it. But the same concept applied. Before we ever started the game, he had about four specific things that he was going to open up for me so that I would have to take advantage of them. I couldn't pass it up. It was too good. And immediately, I was in checkmate as soon as I did it. He was planning my attacks. He was planning to do a good thing for his kingdom. No matter what I thought I was doing, I thought I was innovating, I thought I was changing the game, but he saw something bigger. He knew that there was a bigger plan in mind than I 
ever could possibly conceive. God plays a great game of chess. God knows what his purposes are. His purposes have been firmly established before the world was even created. And no one can thwart God's plans. He doesn't have to adjust. He doesn't have to go to plan B when you see things happen in your life and you think, oh man, how's God going to get me out of this? God doesn't have to get you out of this. He knows exactly what is happening and He is in control. What the devil intends as a weapon, God has ordained as a tool. Now this is a pretty big deal. And I say it's a pretty big deal because you can't turn pages of Scripture without seeing it. Now, everything that we're going to talk about today as far as, as some flawed thinking, some, some difficult things that get into our minds, all of these things are things that I have wrestled with myself in past times. I've gone through fears about how God would handle my situation. I've tried to come up with excuses for God when He did things that seemed to me to be inexplicable, inexcusable. A holy and righteous God would not and could not do those things. Why is life so out of control? All the things that we all commonly wrestle with, I've, I've been through them. It took a long time and a lot of pain for me to come to grips with the fact that ultimately, when all is said and done, just as Job realized, he's God and I'm not. And I don't know what's going on, but he always does. As we work through some of these things, you and I might be wrestling with whether God is sovereign in our suffering. Around the world, people are being persecuted for their faith. And when I say persecuted, I mean facing mortal danger, life-threatening danger. Where the gospel is preached in more than 50 countries, it is outlawed. And yet, when we know the truth, we cannot shy away from it. So those who stand for truth in those countries face loss that you and I can only imagine because here in the United States of America, we don't have to deal with those things. Now, we still face persecution. We face mockery. We are belittled. Often in the academic world, we are looked down upon. My daughter, who is a doctor, is quite successful. She's a, a veterinarian and was an excellent student at Purdue Veterinary Medicine, was told by other students in the class that she couldn't be a scientist because she's a Christian. Christians can't be scientists because they believe in that fable that we call the Bible. Her grades suggested otherwise. As we go through our lives, our employers may have standards that fly in the face of what we know to be the commands of God. We're seeing an increase in the intensity of the sexual and moral revolution in our society. So it's no longer enough 
for folks to seek equal footing as humans, as citizens, and equal rights, we are now seeing an infringement, infringement's not even really the right word, an attack on what we have known to be, according to the First Amendment, our religious freedom. Bear in mind, the Constitution is not what gives us our freedom of religion. As the Declaration of Independence recognizes, all of us are created by God with certain rights that He has given that we cannot alienate, we cannot let go of. These rights are not given by a government, they are given by our Creator. We live in a time when those who stand for God's morality, for righteousness, are called bigots. Preaching the gospel is called hate speech. Unfortunately, it is reality that too many in the name of Christ, not knowing Christ themselves at all, have veered away from the truth of the gospel bludgeoning people with a Bible that is not written by the, by the God of heaven. Bludgeoning people with the law as they see it. When the God of holiness and righteousness calls us to love and grace, that's not who the church is. That's not what Christianity is. Don't be confused. Don't fall into the trap of believing that because some have abused truth and misrepresented truth that we should be apologetic about what is actually truth. We cannot. We dare not. We must not. And we see that example in Stephen as he displayed God's power in standing for truth and he displayed God's grace in seeking mercy of for his persecutors. The same thing now is being scattered throughout the region as the persecution drives the church out of Jerusalem into the surrounding area in, in Judea and Samaria so that they can preach the gospel and love people. How it works. We love God more than anything, so we take his word and we want to show people how much He loves them by sharing it with them. And we demonstrate God's love for them by reflecting the reality of Christ through our everyday relationships. That's what they're doing. Now, again, we may face persecution, which wonder what God is doing. We may rail against it. There are protests all the time because somebody thinks their rights are being trampled on. And everybody likes to claim it's in the name of God. I'm pretty sure God did not call you to march with a picket sign. He called you to suffer. I didn't write it in the book. As we're, as we're working through the rest of this, I want us to, to sort of transition our thoughts beyond persecution. Yes, persecution. Expect it. All Christians need to expect persecution and be ready to stand in the face of it. Not just the uncomfortable persecution that we see today, but eventually as it increases, loss of jobs, 
loss of homes, loss of life. That's, that's a reality. We need to be ready for that. But thinking beyond that to how we live our lives today, we very often lose sight of the fact that in our other hardships, COVID-19, the quarantine that goes along with it, all of the difficulties, being unemployed because my employer has shut down through this virus, any number of other circumstances that can weigh on our hearts, we so easily and quickly forget that God is in it. That He has a plan that is bigger. The devil might think that he's got a great move, but God always has him in checkmate. He's already defeated. So as we work through this, understanding this basic reality that, the devil, that what the devil intends as a weapon, God has ordained as a tool. There are some basic truths, four specific truths that I want us to see that we must understand about God's hand in our hardship. Hopefully as we walk through these, the text of Scripture will make them evident and plain logic will carry them through for you. But at some point, you're going to need to make a choice. I'm going to need to make a choice. There will be natural thoughts that come into our heads. And we have to choose to reject the lie and affirm the truth. We need to choose when we feel one way to recognize that the Scripture is truth. That is a reflection of reality. My feelings are only a reflection of my circumstances and how I respond to them. There's a response to stimuli. Now, I don't choose those feelings. They're a reaction to things. And I actually don't choose the thoughts that enter my head, but I do choose the thoughts that stay in my head. Much like a salesperson or a uh, cultist who comes to your door, I don't control who knocks. It could be a Jehovah's Witness. It could be a serial killer. It could be the Schwann's man. But I do get to decide who I hold the door open for and invite into my house. Same is true with our thoughts. So these are truths we must understand about God's hand in our hardship. First, when we fear that God is impotent, we must realize that God is omnipotent. When we fear that God is impotent, without power, powerless, weak, we must realize that God is omnipotent. We need to recognize that God is all-powerful. There is nothing too hard, too difficult. Nothing too much for God. Nothing impossible for God. We get this thought that God is, is limited. He's not big enough to handle what I'm facing. Or maybe... I have a hope that God is big enough. Boy, I, I just I really hope that God can do it. I really hope that, that God can see me through this. I really hope that, and it's not biblical hope, the, com, the confident assurance of that thing that is yet to come. It's that hope against hope, always in a subjunctive voice, the woulds and coulds. And we end up with this, if you are able kind of prayer. God, if you're able, take this away. God, if you're able, cure this cancer. God, if you're able, find me a job. Rest assured, God is able. 
He's able to do anything. Job 42.2. Let's go ahead and turn to Job 42. If you have something to mark your Bible with, a pencil or a piece of paper, you might want to do that because we'll be back in Job again in all likelihood. Job gets me excited. And I guess one of the reasons it gets me excited is because it's such a clear picture of the central issue we all wrestle with. I don't think it's an accident that this is in all likelihood the first book of Scripture ever penned. I don't think it's an accident that that the, the, the first book of wisdom that we see here before the Psalms and the Proverbs is God doing something that humans don't understand. And Job and his friends have all these great thoughts about who God is and what is right and fair. And by all accounts, what happens to Job just isn't fair. Job's the one really good guy. He's better than everybody else, and God has blessed him for it. And yet, we know bad things happen to Job. We'll come back and look at that a little more later. But right now, in Job 42, the last, book, the last chapter of the book, God has just spent several chapters basically telling Job, sit down, shut up, you don't know what you're talking about. You think you know so much, Job? Why don't you tell me? Surely you were born when I created the universe. Surely you know where I store the wind. Why don't you tell me all this stuff, Job, since you're so wise? Job's response, I think, is one of the best pictures of humility in the Scriptures. 42, starting with verse 1, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. Many things, a million things, all things. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job had spent the entire book defending God and defending himself. Been telling his friends, God would not do something unjust. God would not do something that, that isn't justified. And if God would show up, then he would surely acquit me of all wrongdoing. And in all the things that he said, he didn't sin. But what Job forgot is that God doesn't answer to Job, and he doesn't answer to us. Why? Because God is all-powerful. Now, if you don't like God, that's one thing. That, that's your call, I suppose. But to look at the God of the universe, if He is real, if God does exist, if your logic and your observation of evidence leads you to believe that there is a designer who has intelligence, who has created, and that all of the complexity of the universe did not just happen by accident, by chance, as 
truly logical approach would lead you to believe. If you believe that, then this particular being, this creator, is bigger than you could ever fathom. And if God is all of that, if God is able to speak the worlds into existence in Genesis 1, if God is able to do all the things that he says to Job in the, in the last couple of chapters here, if he can do all of this and control all of creation, then who in the world are we to doubt him? You might doubt his character if you don't know him. You might question a lot of things about God. But when you see the majesty of creation, the power of the ocean, how quickly all of our brilliant human technology is destroyed by a puff of wind or a little bit of fog. Not too long ago, a number of years ago, Atlanta was entirely shut down. Atlanta, one of the biggest, most modern cities, not only in the U.S., in the world, this is a very, very powerful place. A little bit of fog shuts the entire city down. People couldn't travel. Public transportation was shut down. Stores were closed. They couldn't do anything because nobody could see and nobody could do anything about it. And the entire city probably was covered with a gallon of water. I don't know the math on that. Don't call me. But in this tiny amount of water, a little bit of puff in the air, all of our human strength and wisdom and intelligence and skill and technology and advancement, nothing. God does that. The breath of his nostrils. Not hard. God raised Jesus from the dead. It wasn't hard. God is omnipotent. 